Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into true crime cases through the lens of a trained investigator and former prosecutor turned judge. If you are sensitive to expletives, anatomical descriptions, and accurate descriptions of true crime scenes, this podcast may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel, and I have special guest Jason in the studio with me today. Hi, Jason. Hi, how's it going? Good. We have Megan is out this week. She is actually at a judge's conference doing very important judgy things. So I didn't want to um, miss doing a release for you guys. So I just thought I would invite Jason back. So Jason, I've got some couple of really good cases for you this week. This one takes place in Sydney, Australia. I don't know if you listened to the Crime Curious case on Diet Love Pass or not, but this is very similar to that case in that we don't really know if a crime was committed, if it was natural circumstances. I don't know. There is a lot of evidence, both scientific and and kind of investigatory, if that's the right word, um, for why someone would maybe want to see these people oft. And then there's also some actual science that could be the reason of, of why they're no longer with us. But it's a very, from my understanding, it's kind of a well-known mind boggler in Australia. So for our Australian listeners, this is the Chandler Bogle case, or I've seen it written Bogle Chandler case. It just just depends. But maybe that rings a bell for some listeners. Maybe not. Have you ever heard of this case, Jason? I feel like every other time we talk, you're giving me new reasons to not go to Australia. <laughs> I, but it's like a bucket As list. Australian item, listeners. Though. They do request some really good cases, but there's a lot of reason not to go. And now you can be scared of some riverbanks there too. There are a lot of theories and I'm going to take you through them. There's some hard science as well. I will also, you know, bring that up too, but there's no actual charges that have ever been made in this case. And they're, they most likely won't be. I wouldn't say that there's a ton of research. I was only able to get 10 pages out of this, which is pretty small for me. If you guys are an avid listener of this podcast, you know that I do some pretty deep research. So I found what I could, but a lot of it is that it's a mystery. So that kind of limits the amount of information that's available as well. And I'll get into kind of some one of the documentaries that was made as well. So we are going all the way back to 1962. The first person that I want to tell you about is our first victim. This is Gilbert Stanley Bogle, also known as Gib by to his friends. He was born January 5th, 1924 in Archibald and to, excuse me, not in Archibald, to Archibald and Bertha Bogle in New Zealand. And unfortunately, he was only four days away from his 39th birthday when he meets his untimely death um, in one of the most unusual ways that we have ever heard. But possibly doing an activity, Jason, that you may say, you know, if I have to die this way, this is kind of how I want to go out. So Orgy. pretty close, man. Pretty close. You understand why I picked this case for you. I knew where you're going. Yeah, yeah. So Gil- Gilbert Stanley was, he was actually born in, I want to try to slay all of the crazy uh, place names in this case because we recently got a review that someone was super upset that I mispronounced something once in the podcast and gave me a three-star review. And to that person, I just want to say, so you've never mispronounced something? You know all the world words in the world? I'm going to say bullshit on that one, but thanks for taking the time to write me and tell me how dumb you think I am. So I appreciate that. But it wasn't even a common word. It's not like it was cucumber. No, no, exactly. It was a person's name. And, uh, you know, I still maintain that I said it appropriately. So I'm not sure what they were referencing. But whatever. I even went back and listened to the episode and was like, yeah, I have no idea what your complaint was. But cool. Thanks. Thanks. Come again. Actually, Gilbert, he was born in 
Wong Jinnui, New Zealand, and he was the fourth child of his parents. His father was a licensed surveyor. His wife um, was a stay-at-home mom, but they were well-educated. They went. They were New Zealanders. They both went to Wanjui, excuse me, Wanjui uh, Collegiate School. Gib, I'm probably going to refer to him. He was referred to a lot as Gib instead of Gilbert for his first name, so I'm probably going to end up saying that as well. Um, he went to Victoria University College in Wellington to study physics. The dude was brilliant, and he does later become a physicist, as a matter of fact. At given the time frames where we're at, Gib was eligible to go to the war in 1945, but... One of his professors, DCH Florence, persuaded like the authorities, the manpower authorities, to allow him to remain studying at the university um, where he was then, honestly, he was kind of put to good use there because he was so brilliant that he was directed to work as an assistant in the laboratory that was kind of building things and working on new technologies one of which later on in his life becomes like the technology of microwaves, by the way. He was able to stay in the university and he ended up staying even longer to study than would have traditionally um, been called for because it was like he was working, working at the university instead of enlisting for the war. And during this time, he also became a talented musician and he was a linguist. He could speak several languages. And I'm telling you this because I do think that all of this background information is really important when we get into some of the conspiracy theories later. But he was active on campus in student affairs. He ended up going to England in 1947 as a Rhodes Scholar and entered um, Oriel College in Oxford. So a Rhodes Rhodes Scholarship, if you guys don't know, is an international postgraduate award for students to study at the University of Oxford. Um, It was established in 1902, and it's the oldest graduate scholarship in the world. It's considered extremely prestigious to get into this scholarship program. So like I said, the dude is, is got lots of brains up there in that cranium of his, and he put it to good use, which might have also been um, some of the reason people wanted him gone. He worked for two years at the Claridon Laboratory on pragmatic renaissance experiments for very low temperatures, and he was published, actually. He published articles in... Um, different physics magazines, things like that. He had a lot of mentors. He, his mentors spoke very highly of him, of what a accomplished experimenter that he was, because he had both a good grasp of how to run an appropriate experiment, but also the theoretical side of things, which becomes super ironic when we are literally now, many years later, still theorizing his death. A little bit a little bit more about him. On September 11th, 1950, at the Paris Church in Essex, Gibb married Vivian Mary Rich. She was a school teacher and a fellow graduate of Victoria University College. They go on to have four children together. Their children were not named because at the time of his death, they were minors. From July 1952, Gibb lectured in physics at the University of Otago in New Zealand. His achievements in research and teaching brought him a senior lectureship in September 1995, excuse me, 1955, not 95, we just jumped. Um, But he was kind of outgrowing Otago University. He was looking for something bigger. So he applied for a position as a senior research officer at the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, otherwise known as the CSIRO, something like that. Anyway, he was in the physics department This is a national standards laboratory in Sydney. It's a very prestigious place to work. He meets lots of people there. And this is basically, you know, kind of him making it in his profession that he got to go and not only do experiments at this huge laboratory, but he also got to teach because he was a wonderful lecturer from what his mentors had said about him. 
So he's appointed there. He's also working in cryogenics. By October 1957, at this big um, Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organization laboratory, he was basically appointed indefinitely. Like at first, they just gave him a three-year contract. And now they're, by 1957, he is in like Flynn and they don't want to see him go anywhere. So the chief, the big chief dude, uh, G.H. Briggs was like, dude, you can stay here and run your experiments and teach as long as you wish. So he was pretty excited about this and the fact that he was getting such positive feedback um, at this point in time, you know, he's in his 30s and he's starting to work on the development of MACER, which is microwave amplification by stimulated admission of radiation technology. Okay, those are all words that are super way above my pay grade and my um, intelligence. I can't even say the word intelligence for fuck's sake. I mean, what am I doing saying microwave amplification by stimulated emission of radiation, you know? So I'm going to tell you all this because keep this in the back of your mind of he's doing research, what's going on. Um, the Cold War is happening in the world. There We are in Sydney, um, Australia. There's, there's some issues, some tensions, and he's running experiments. Gibb is doing so good at his job in this research laboratory that he's actually contacted in 1962 by Bell Telephone Research Laboratories in New Jersey, USA. The CSIRO, the laboratory that he currently works for, granted him a leave of absence in 1962 so that he could travel to America and basically go interview with them because they wanted to start researching quantum electronics. And they had heard that he was literally the most brilliant member of the CSIRO staff, and they wanted to meet with him. So before he is to head to the United States, and he was going to take his kids and wife with him, um, it's the holidays. So on December 21st, 1962, just before they're ready to leave for the USA to talk with Bell Telephone, he meets, Gibb meets a woman at a Christmas party named Margaret Oliver Chandler. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her because she's actually the second victim here. Margaret was born on April 2nd, 1934 in Wentworthville, New South Wales. She became a nurse and she married Jeffrey Arnold Chandler actually in 1957. So when this case takes place, they had only been married for five years. Uh, they actually got married on Christmas Eve. And Jeffrey Chandler is, is a scientific photographer. He was also employed by the CSIRO. So Margaret's husband, Jeffrey, works with Gilbert. That, that could be an important detail later when we're talking about theories. The two have two... Vivian, Margaret, Jeffrey, and Gilbert. Yes. So Vivian is Gibb's wife, Gilbert's wife. Yep, Vivian and Gilbert are married, and Jeffrey and Margaret are married. Vivian and Gilbert, husband and wife, four kids. Margaret and Jeffrey, husband and wife, two kids. When they met, so they are all at this Christmas party. They're co-workers, you know, Jeffrey and Gib are co-workers, and they introduce each other to their wives. Well, here's the thing. When... Margaret and Gibb meet each other. They uh, start making eyes at one another, Jay. He is liking what she's putting down. And supposedly, reportedly, allegedly, Margaret was encouraged by her husband, Jeffrey, to take Gib Gilbert, Gibb, as a uh, lover. So the two enter into a sexual relationship. His exact quote was, if you want to take Gib as a lover, if it would make you happy, you do it. And I, this is a quote from a book that Jeffrey later writes. It's about five years after their deaths that he writes that literally says, it's a very like frank book, but it literally is titled, So You Think I Did It by Jeffrey Chandler. Wow. Yeah. 
this was this was this happened in the 50s we're no saying. we're in 1962 so i know where you're going with this and you are correct yep the thing is is that it really does seem as though that open marriage was the concept here now i don't know about gibbs wife vivian if she was exactly okay with this or just had to put up with it but gib did have several lovers we find out later so Gib is pretty used to taking on an an extra lady or two. I don't know if Vivian did. There was never any information about that. But we do know that Jeffrey enjoyed himself a little extra dipping. And so he was encouraging Margaret to also do the same. In reality, free love, which is, you know, free from guilty feelings, was a normal practice in what was called Sydney Push. And it is very much connected to the university. So I looked up what Sydney Push was because this was referenced a lot in my research. And according to old Wikipedia, the Sydney Push was an intellectual subculture in Sydney from the late 1940s to the early 1970s. Its politic, politics were predominantly um, left-wing libertarianism. And the Push operated in kind of like a pub pub culture and included university students, academics, manual workers, musicians, lawyers, criminals, journalists, public servants, you name it. Um, their, their common bond, Jay, is basically their bonding over the rejection of conventional morality and authoritarianism. So basically like, oh, the sanctity of marriage? No way. Not for us. Free love. That is what the Bogles and the Chandlers were apparently a, a part of was Sydney Push, if that makes sense. So I'm going to take you to New Year's Eve on December 31st, 1962. So the last day of the year, the Chandlers and Gib Bogle. I do not know if his wife was present or not, but they go to a co-worker's house for a barbecue and during that barbecue, their co-worker, Ken Nash, says to him, Hey, my wife Ruth and I were having a dinner party tonight. Y'all should come. He was speaking to Gib, and Gib made sure that the Chandlers were also invited because by this time he's got a um you know, he's got his eyes on old Margaret. So the dinner party takes place at Ken and Ruth Nash's house, and that was um in Chatswood. The Chandlers arrive about 10 p.m. for that party, and Jeffrey is kind of casually dressed, even though it's a dinner party. The reason for that, I think, is because he wasn't planning on staying at that dinner party all night, and we find out later, about 11.30, so he's only there for an hour and a half, he leaves alone because he drove to a Sydney Push New Year's party that was held at the home of Ken Buckley, who was a senior lecturer in economic history at the University of Sydney. And when he arrived there about midnight, Jay, old Jeffrey Chandler met up with his lover, Pamela Logan. So I think that's why he was casually dressed, because he knew he's going to take old Margaret to this party, leave her there, so he can go get his bang on with his casually dressed. Are we talking like sweatpants? No, no. Probably at that time it's like khakis and a polo. You know, like he wasn't dressed for a New Year's Eve dinner party. But he also didn't stay. He was there for about an hour and a half, and then he leaves without his wife, and he goes and meets his lover Pamela Logan. They then drive to her house in Darlington, get their groove on, and then he returns to the Chatwoods party about 2.30 a.m. So good for him, man. You know, a couple, two and a half hours there. Not too shabby, Jeffrey. So I probably shouldn't say that. These people are like still alive and he's older now and is probably like, yeah, I could really fuck in the day. They right. So they then... At 2.30 a.m., he returns back to the original dinner, dinner party at the, on Chatwood, um, or in Chatwood, excuse me, with his other co-worker, Ken and Ruth. So he's there. But he leaves again 
alone just a short time later because it was already arranged that Margaret was going to get a ride home from Gibb. This is when, according to Jeffrey, he was very accepting. I mean, be pretty hypocritical of him to be like, no, Margaret, I want to take you home, even though I just got done banging my lover. You know, so he just encourages, allegedly, encourages like, sure, you you go get your get your bang on with Gib and I'll meet you back at home there. I will say because, you know, you doing what you do, me doing what I do, you know, we do do. The Chandler's two children were in the care of their maternal grandparents in Granville for this when night. When you say what we do, what we do, you're for during our occupations, not our social life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, not of children. Right. With not what the, you do, what I do. No, no, not the push parties. The I wanted to let everybody know their children were appropriately cared for this entire evening when they were off bumping uglies with their lovers. So what happens is Gib Bogle and Margaret Chandler leave the party about 4 a.m. Now, can we just commend, these people are my age, Jason. They are 38 years old. I commend them for partying until 4 a.m. on New Year's because, baby, it ain't happening here. I mean, well, you know, you've spent many a New Year's with me. Have I ever made it to 4 a.m.? No, no. I was up to one o'clock in the morning the other night and I'm still recouping from it. Right. Yes. It just doesn't, it just isn't, it isn't for me anymore in my old ass bones. But they drive, what happens is Margaret and Gib drive to a nearby nearby place called Lane Co. River, which is also known as Lover's Lane. Of course it is. I know. Funny that you should say that because when I read that, I literally said in my my head, of fucking course it is. But of course, I'm picturing it as a place for teenagers to go and fuck, not for two nearly 40-year-old people, but like, what else? Like a, like a look, like a overlook over a cliff in the woods. It's so overlooking a riverbank and that's an important detail. Mm-hmm. And at this point in time, we can only speculate as to what really happened next, okay? So I'm going to break it down for you. What we do know is that several hours later, their bodies are found, and they are originally discovered. It's how their bodies are found that is the most perplexing. So Gibbs' body was discovered first, and it was near Fuller's Bridge um, on this riverbank on, on Lover's Lane by two kids that were searching for golf balls. And this is the very next day. This is January 1st, 1963. And they saw his body, but they actually just presumed him to be a drunk guy sleeping it off. So they thought nothing of it. And when they came back and the dude is still there, and and it's been an hour later um, is what reports said, and he hadn't moved, they got closer and saw that his face was blue. So they went to fetch help. When police arrived on the scene, they discovered that Gib Bogle's body was half undressed, but someone had placed his trousers over the back of his legs in such a way that he appeared to be dressed, but he actually wasn't. And that's why at first, when those boys saw him, they thought it was just a drunk guy. But also, there was a piece of carpet that was also laid on top of his back Underneath his jacket, which was laid perfectly on his back. So if you can picture this, we have a man who is a, is, is naked, okay? But he's got his trousers laying perfectly on his legs as if they're on him, but they're not. Then we have a piece of carpet. And then we have a coat over the carpet that's over his naked torso. I don't know. I can't make rhyme or reason of that one. No, no. Well, and we do get into more of that, and just I just got to give you the details I am, I am right now. Concerned that kids are looking for golf balls on New Year's Eve. New Year's Day, yeah, it's January first. In the winter, they're off school. New York. Um, this isn't winter for them. It's Australia, right? They're in Australia, so lost. I lost track of him being. Yes, right, right, right. No, they are. So you know the the seasons are flip flopped. So it's warm there. When the police arrive on the scene, and they discover, you know, him. They figure out that, okay, he clear, someone had clearly placed this stuff there. But then just, four, I think it said like 40 meters away was Margaret Chandler's body. 
She was also in a state of undress. Her body had been covered with a broken up cardboard beer box. Why do I feel like that is just going to be a story someone says about me sometime? So she's got this broken up <laughs> cardboard beer box covering her. And it was a box of wine. I know maybe. I don't know. I like beer more than I like wine, actually, but the, it, it was initially believed that she had covered Gib Bogle's body first and then her own. But closer examination suggested that there is no way that she could have placed the um, the cardboard on herself the way that it was. So there's that. Someone she have covered herself. Well, right. I think they were thinking that um, like she got they got cold. And so they were trying to I, I, I honestly have no idea where the thoughts of that would have come from but that's that was just the initial in the initial investigation they said they thought maybe she covered herself once they kind of figure this out that you know what she um she could not have covered herself with this beer this broken up beer box they discover that they kind of take take their bodies for processing whatever the most unusual thing that they notice though jay is that they have no marks or trauma or injuries to their body whatsoever. None. The autopsy does tell us that they died somewhere between 4.45 and 6 a.m. On further medical examination, it was revealed that Margaret Chandler had not had sexual intercourse. So we can assume that that's what they were um, trying to get to but didn't actually get to the act, which is super unfortunate for her. I would have really loved for her to go out. I don't know what, I don't know what kind of autopsy they did in the 60s. I mean, it's, it's certainly... It's, they were just checking vaginally. Yeah, they had ways to, yes, to look for excretion and, you know, test it against his DNA. We certainly had that technology in, in, at this time, and they, there was nothing. So, and the two, like I said, the two were about four, I think I said meters. I actually, they were 40 feet apart from one another. Okay. So the coroner, the forensic side. Uh, Big difference. Cause I know your 40 meters is like 120 feet. Right. That's why I um, corrected myself because they were actually only 40 feet uh, away from each other. So this, obviously everyone is baffled at first. The police, forensic scientists, the coroner, which the coroner was JJ Looms and he was, really unable to determine what caused their death. He seemed that poison was the most likely cause because there was no toxic substances that were found during the autopsy. And there was some signs at the scene that suggested that they had been poisoned because they did find from both of them vomit and poop. I like how I just dramatically paused after the word poop. I mean, you know... The coroner's report says excretia, but I just felt like for the sake of ease, they vomited and shit themselves. And that is just no way for two people, two lovers to have to go on an exposed bed of river. And I just feel so very bad for them because although I may want to go down. Those two, I would like to be the first one to go. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. I thought you were saying if you had to choose between vomit or excretia no, i mean if i was if that's how i died with my secret lover <laughs> i'd want to be the first one to go so i didn't have to sit there and watch it happen yeah yeah right because you know i mean essentially this was probably hitting them both at the same time very closely and oh. yeah that would have been horrific um unfortunately because new year's new year's day was a public holiday forensic examination of their bodies was delayed for 36 hours once it was done, there were no poison, nothing poisonous was found um, in their bodies. So I did, I did want to include that because I don't know if we would have found something sooner if so much time hadn't have had to pass. Which it seems odd that it's like, oh, we got two dead bodies, but you know, holiday. <laughs> so I just feel like there are some professions where you're on call. Right. Well, yeah. Now, of course, the case attracted instant publicity because it involved high society people. It involved wife swapping. It involved all kinds, an unidentified third person at the death scene. 
because they know someone covered these people up, right? Like they didn't, sorry, but Jeffrey didn't just put his, lay his pants on his bare ass by himself, right? I'd like to know if wife swapping is or was as taboo in Australia as it may have been. Yeah, I I think given from so from the research that I've done and the way that this was described as being such a media circus because it involved wife wife swapping of high society people, this was a big deal. So that kind of suggested to me that it was not um, as openly accepted, which I mean, it wasn't here in America either, but this is the 60s. So this is a time of LSD. This is a time of, of the free love and all of that going going all around. And so I do think that it was frowned upon and a really big deal because part of what makes this such a shit show is the media frenzy that takes place because of that. So, and also I think is what made Jeffrey write his book titled, So You Think I Did It. <laughs> which is exactly how I would title a book if I was being accused of murdering my my spouse as well. The other thing is that there's a lot of speculation and a lot of media around the fact that it seemed as though Bogle could have maybe been involved in research um, for the Cold War that was important for the Cold War, and now he's dead. There were several inquests on this. The last one, May 1963, did not really help resolve anything. The coroner, J.J. Looms, concluded that Bogle and Chandler had died because of, quote, acute circulatory failure. But as to the circumstances under which such circulatory failure was brought about, the evidence does not permit me to say. So in other words... They died because their hearts stopped beating or they stopped breathing. <laughs> cool. Yep. We That's usually how that works. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I'm not surprised. Did you know that you die when your heart stops beating or you stop breathing? So thank you for nothing, Mr. JJ Looms. I'm sure you did your best, buddy, but literally you just should have put IDK. No, no fucking clue how these people died. I'm not sure. Yeah. So the investigation, as the police are looking at this, though, Jeffrey, everyone, I mean, there's a lot of people to interview. There's a lot of people who saw these two throughout that night. They do find out pretty quickly that Jeffrey, Jeffrey Chandler did leave his wife in the middle of the night in the party to go hook up with his lover, right? And which I think is probably what made him write his book, So You Think I Did It, in 1969, because they did kind of start to lean towards the husband did it, right? I mean, that's kind of the easy go-to at first. But they did become suspicious of another Margaret. This Margaret was called Margaret Fowler. She was a scientifically trained, you're going to laugh at this, she was a scientifically trained librarian. You're being very quiet right now. Well, I, I mean... I realize that we're only doing audio today, but you can tell by my facial expressions that it just doesn't make any sense because I don't know what that is. Right. Nope. I'm not sure. It's considered a science. And what, what part of that is scientific? scientific? The Dewey Decimal System back part of science is that. I'm I'm not sure, but she was a sci- described as a scientifically trained uh, librarian. And she was also Gilbert Bogle's like, long time, three years running lover. So there is a theory that Margaret Fowler caught wind that he was starting to fook with Margaret Chandler and she wanted to be the only Margaret in his life. If your wife's okay with you having a girlfriend, that's one thing, but your girlfriend's probably not okay with you having another girl. Right. I think that's where the line, the social line is drawn at that point in time. It seems as though his wife, Vivian, maybe was okay with an open relationship, but girlfriend Margaret was not. Aside from, of course, having to share him with Vivian, I would I would think she knows that's going on. But I feel like it'd be hard to find more than one woman that's okay with that. Most definitely. I I concur, sir, that you're probably not gonna. And and also it just adds insult to injury that her name is also Margaret. 
like how many, I mean, I'm sure it was a very popular name for this time, but I know it makes things easier for him if his, all of his girlfriends are named Margaret. I get that. But I don't think that Margaret Fowler was okay with this. And like I said, they had been together for three years, but she decided to throw out to police another possibility. And she says, you know what? I know that Gibb was working on chemical warfare research. So I know you want to throw shade at me for being a jealous lover, but you might want to start looking into what he was working on. So then a man named Peter Wright speaks to the investigators. Peter was actually a former officer, for sure. I don't know why I had to say it like that. A former officer of Britain's MI5. And he claimed that an alleged Soviet spy, one Sir Roger Hollis, had actually recommended Bogle to the Australian Security Intelligence Organization and that, you know, they're kind of all speculating that perhaps Bogle had been eliminated as a Soviet agent. So this is starting to get thick and deep. And then comes a woman named Catherine Dalton. Can you go back and say that last line again? That now it's starting to get deep. <laughs> thick and deep. Oh, I forgot that I added the thick. Okay. Yes. Now it is starting to get thick and deep. Because <clears throat> now what happens is a widow comes forward. Her name's Catherine Dalton. She's the widow of one JCJ, excuse me, GCJ Dalton. No fucking clue who that was. But apparently... Her husband was actually assassinated during a government espionage uh, situation. And she was like, listen, I would not be surprised at all, given the work that he was doing, if he was not uh, taken out. Because she had firsthand knowledge of how that can happen. It was the investigating detective's belief that the victim's bodies were actually covered not by a murderer. So if they were murdered... They actually think that there was a third person who covered them for modesty after discovering the bodies. And an initial suspect was a voyeur who contacted police twice using different names. And after interrogation, he was quickly dismissed. So there's this guy who's just like a well-known voyeur in the community. So after interrogation, they throw the voyeur out like he is not. They don't think he was involved at all. But they think that the person who may have thrown the clothes over the victim's bodies was a greyhound trainer who walked his dogs daily on a path that passed like right by where their bodies were found. There was a walking path. And he only came forward after his car was identified. And when he was interviewed by the police, he claimed to have used a different path that day at first. The first time he was interviewed, he was like, you know, you know what? I didn't walk that path. I didn't do that. I didn't see anything. So they're like, are you sure? Because you're a well-known Greyhound trainer. Your vehicle was seen, you know, at this area by these, by several people that are in this area. And you always walk this, you know, this path. Like, are you sure that it wasn't you? He's like, nope, nope, nope. Well, then the dude died in 1977, and in his obituary, he claimed to have been the first to find the bodies. It was in his obituary. So, like, why are you holding on to that your whole life, man? And then you have it printed in in your obituary? Because this was still a hot case in 1977, even though it happened in 1960, you know, 1962, 1963. And the theory behind why people think for sure that his obituary was correct is because he was very, very well known to be a prude. And so his family is like, oh yeah, he did. He was all about modesty. He did not like nakedness. If he stumbled upon dead bodies in the park, he absolutely would have covered them up. But he didn't want to say that it was him or to implicate himself in any way because they have no idea how these people died. I'm sure he didn't want to put himself right in smack dab in the middle of the investigation. And if he doesn't, you know, trust investigators, then he doesn't want to be a part of, of that. That I found that to be a very interesting tidbit. That That's super weird. Yep. 
that they he, he he is more than likely the person who covered their bodies up but just didn't want to place himself in the scene in any way. And you know what? We've seen some fucked up police investigations and we have tremendous respect for police, but not all of them are amazing and just like people in our profession, not all of them are amazing either. And I can see maybe why he would want to deny this. Like I didn't have anything to do with their deaths, but I don't want you to know that I was troubled by their nakedness and covered them up because you still don't know who did this. What are you, what if you're going to put it on me? That bothered him. The fact that they were, the fact they were naked bothered him more than the, the fact, fact that, that they, they were, were dead. dead. Yes. That was what I was going to point out as well. Then later on, another woman comes forward and says, you know what? I actually found Margaret Chandler's purse about four kilometers away in in Bushland that was between three houses. One of those houses actually happened to be the Greyhound trainer guy. Well, then shortly after this information came out, another dude comes forward and says, listen, I know the Greyhound trainer guy. And he actually called me soon after the deaths and told me that he had come across the bodies. But they could not get this guy in any way, shape, or form, to admit that he came across the bodies, that he had covered the bodies up, that he saw what happened to them. His friend, hey, I found some bodies. Yep, called his friend and was like, dude, I just, you know, whatever, I just found some bodies, and I don't know why the... And it seems as though the friend wanted to be open with police and was like, hey, you know, you should question him because that's exactly what he told me. But they couldn't get any more. It was all, I mean, essentially, that's all circumstantial. So we don't know. I mean, at this point, did he come across the bodies or was he responsible for the bodies? All this information came up after the dog walker was dead. Mm-hmm. Said in his obituary, he was the first one to stumble upon the bodies. I'm going to take you through some of the other theories, but most of these were discarded by the mid-1960s. These are theories of poisonous gas, um, like dry ice, of weed. There were theories of weed killer in the grass, aphrodisiac and shellfish toxins. So they were thinking about that as well. Like, could they have ate something at the parties that hit them at the same time? Some bad shellfish? I don't know. When they were vomiting and shitting themselves, perhaps they got a lot of the toxins out, but it was enough in them to kill them. To kill them. Mm -hmm. And I mean, other people would have ate the same things at the parties right unless someone at the party made sure that just their things were poisoned the things they were eating they were that was a busy busy night they were a lot of places the other thing and this one has been pretty refuted i would say one of the biggest explanations that people lead led like re- leaned really heavy on was lsd either an accidental overdose like did they take it or were they given unwittingly, you know, lethal amounts? But the problem with this is since then, there have been a lot of studies and there's actually no confirmed overdoses on LSD, recreational LSD. Right. The other problem with the LSD is that there was no traces, traces of it in their bodies. Now, I know that I said that their autopsy didn't take place for 36 hours, but they didn't have... LSD in their bodies. There was also some suspicion that the laboratory that Jeffrey and Gibb worked at was working on a hallucinogen. So did they take this and it the the purpose of the research of this hallucinogen was that it was supposed to be untraceable. And so there's that theory as well. That did were they either given it did they take it? We don't know, but it w- it was designed. Gens don't typically make your heart stop. No, or you shit yourself. Literally shit the riverbed. I mean, I don't know about that, but. No, I, I don't think so. I'm going to say that people wouldn't micro, what's it called? Micro. Um, dose. Yes. Uh, people probably aren't going to micro dose with the shrooms if it makes them shit themselves so explosive diarrhea sign me up (laughs) yes exactly that is a big side effect of a lot of the drugs though that you're like oh okay uncontrollable diarrhea no thanks 
Um, so apparently, yeah, apparently this, this CSIRO laboratory was working on that and we're trying to make it untraceable at the time. Gib Bogle ended up being buried in a cemetery, but Margaret Chandler was cremated and they did not preserve like a ton of tissue samples from their bodies to be able to later be tested. They did have some, okay, but they didn't have a plethora. So they're basically just kind of sitting around waiting for advancements to happen. And in 1996, some relic tissue from their bodies were sent to America to a new forensic lab that applied some new forensic techniques. And essentially, that technique did have trace amounts of LSD in it. But there's still no documented human deaths from an LSD overdose, and they weren't known to be LSD users by their family or friends. But it is 1962, and a lot of people are using that. But it's still just not a strong theory here in what, you know, in in really how they had all of a sudden diarrhea and, and then vomiting right in the middle of trying to get it on, right? There is a theory that now since 2006 that has come forward, Jay, that is more widely accepted. And it is kind of a very interesting um, theory. So now that I've taken you through all the facts of the case of what we know, what investigators know, I'm going to now tell you this theory and you kind of tell me if you think that it fits or not. But it's the hydrogen sulfide hypothesis. And it was created by Peter Butts. That's his name. And he wrote an article about hydrogen sulfide and its toxicity. Well, he decided to take on this case because it's known as the Bogle Chandler case. And he did a documentary in 2006 titled Who Killed Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler? And it actually aired on ABC in September of 2006. He thinks that the two died by accidental hydrogen sulfide poisoning that emanated from the river. So in the 1940s and 50s, the local council received scores of letters from residents complaining of the smell of rotten eggs coming from that river, causing nausea and breathing difficulties. There was also a series of massive fish dying, like fish kills. With the residents facing permanent evacuation, the Maritime Services Board conducted a year-long study of the river, and it found that the bottom muds were saturated to a depth of 50 centimeters with hydrogen sulfide, and that very large and rapid releases of hydrogen sulfide gas could occur from a section of the river that was kind of by like that bridge where Mr. where Gibbs' body was found. The source of this was identified as a factory that had pumped its waste into the river since the 1890s, and the worst affected location was within a quarter of a mile of exactly where Chandler and Bogle had died. On New Year's Day, police divers reported a great disturbance of Black Riverbed sediment Although their search of the river was then delayed for 11 days because the visibility remained really poor, the very cool, warm weather conditions at the time of the deaths would have allowed high concentrations of gas, gas to accumulate. The location where the couple had sought privacy was at water level in a slight, like, depression. So, They're by the water, but there's like this slight little depression. They're going to kind of be surrounded by it. Very romantic. And they were surrounded by the bank and the mangroves, which is also a place where heavier air would linger and would cause the hydrogen sulfide to accumulate in calm condition. Sounds like a more likely scientific explanation. I agree. That, yeah, and I don't know. Probably didn't recognize it back then. No. My my question is, how could these have been the only people in that area over a a 50-year period to die from it or even get sick from it? Right. Well, I do think that he kind of gets to that a little bit. Um, I don't know that people 
I mean, people were getting sick in the air around it. I think what his theory is, is that it's unusual that to, that people would be in such a concentrated area that this unfortunately would happen, but they were there for so long because they were, you know, I mean, they were essentially sitting on the riverbank. Let me run this by you though. Mm -hmm. If you and your lover were snuck off to the riverbank to the point where you're getting naked and you don't notice that smell that rotten egg be there based on the description. If it was that potent to kill them, they had to have noticed the odor. I'm going to tell you no dick is worth suffering through rotten egg smell. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, it doesn't exist. Can we hypothesize that perhaps since this was a New Year's Eve party, that maybe they were intoxicated, which dulls your senses? It doesn't dull it that much. I I wouldn't. Like if you're getting it on and you smell sewage, you'd be like, babe, you got to go home. <laughs> we're done here. We're, we're done. Put your knickers back on. Yeah. <laughs> Put your knickers back on. Yeah. 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 I agree. Well, let me continue to more of what um, this theory says. It said that there were so slight skin abrasions, shoe and knee prints suggested that both victims were disoriented and and had tried to leave the depression before collapsing. Both victims had been unable to correct their clothing, suggesting that the poison had struck them down without warning at the same time and with great speed. So I'm wondering, Jay, if there wasn't a smell until all of a sudden there's a smell and by then it was too late. They had smelled too much and were trying to get the hell out of there. Most importantly, though, there was a purple discoloration that was seen in their blood, which is characteristic of hydrogen sulfide poisoning. And this phenomenon is not related to other color changes in the blood, such as, um, oh, long medical names that I am not going to attempt and then sound stupid and then have someone leave me a three-star review because they're mad that I didn't know how to say hemoglobin, you know? So I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. You nailed that one. I did. That wasn't one that was on the sheet. Out of, out of spite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the toxicologist who tested the victim's tissue samples claimed that had he known about the semen, it would have eliminated the majority of poisons that he had tested for. This knowledge, he claimed, along with the hint provided by the purple coloration of the blood, might have led him to suspect that the poison was hydrogen sulfide. So in other words, there were some of the tissue samples, like some of the um, some of the things that they found in his semen, is what he is, is claiming. If he had tested that in his laboratory coupled with the blood discoloration, then he would have come up with this. But he's claiming he actually didn't get a semen sample to test, and so that's why he missed it. I really think that he's probably just trying to cover up the fact that he missed a really big clue. And then a British forensic science scientist contacted by the police suggested that after reading the case report, he believes that the victims had been gassed. So, and just so you know, it smells like rotten eggs at a level above 100, 50 to 100 ppms. Okay. I don't know. I forgot to look up what ppm is, but basically at a level of like one ppm to 30 ppm, they're definitely not going to smell it at all. Um, and it's 200 ppm where respiratory failure occurs within seconds. So they really believe that it is possible that they sat down on that bank, they started to get it on, and they and they couldn't smell anything. But then there was a disturbance that released a bunch of gas in the riverbank, possibly caused by them, by the fort, by their bodies. And all of a sudden the gas is released, it hits them super hard, and as it was already too noxious by the time they were trying to get the hell out of there. If, if, if you're hitting it so hard you rupture the ground at a riverbank, you know, good on you, Gibbs. Yeah, Gibby got game. I, I feel like that's respectable, but also right. super unexpected. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think this is a case that at the time in the 60s, mm-hmm. 63, correct? Mm-hmm. That they probably didn't have that sort of geological science to determine sure. this gas coming from the river. Sure, 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 sure. Mm-hmm. 
But it also maybe that doesn't make sense if they had the science to make untraceable LSD to. Right, right. I really think that this might have just been a theory that was missed. Well, that too. But I think it's more likely that it was the gas in the, what was it? Hydrochloric sulfide. Sulfide. Mm -hmm. Essentially just sulfide. I mean, hydrogen sulfide. sulfide. The stank. The stank. The stank is what killed them. The stank killed them. Killed by the stank when they were getting, you know, when they were getting stanky. Like, it's sad. This got blown out of proportion because of who they are and the lifestyles that they had. And what they were doing. It's a coincidence that this guy is this genius scientist that was working on weird shit for the government. Yes. Yes. And that they were all swingers. And Mm -hmm. there probably somebody had motive to kill him, but with no evidence of any kind of physical harm poisoning other than this new theory that just came out what 2006 yep i'm I'm, i can buy this well and what is even more interesting is after this documentary was released there was a psychologist that was watching it and he contacted mr butt who came up with this theory and then was on you know was a part of this documentary and he's like listen this information wasn't important to me at the time but i had a client who I saw in 1965. And one of the things that we talked about is that she, what she witnessed was, was a couple on a riverbank that had started to make love and then got horrifically ill and were gone within seconds. The way that it was described to the therapist was very, very similar to what Dr. Butts or Mr. Butts, excuse me, was saying how someone would react if they were poisoned suddenly by a noxious gas to the point that it's lethal. So he begged these two women to, oh, this in backstory, the reason, and of course the therapist was not going to give names or harm any patient client confidentiality, but the reason that this person was being seen by her therapist was that she was a lesbian and that was not accepted by her family. She was from a strong Catholic family and she knew that if she came forward, if the two of them came forward and told the police what they witnessed, there would be all kinds of questions of why were you there? Why were you there that time of night? It's four, it's between 445 and 6 a.m. So why are you there at that time? with another woman and it would have brought shame and guilt and all of these things on their family. So they never came forward. Essentially now how this case ends is Mr. Butt begging the public of if you are one of those two women who were there, um, come forward, give some closure here to these families and just confer for us this theory about the poisoning. Because if that's what you witnessed, and, and according to what was told to this therapist, it goes right on to Mr. Butt's theory of, yes, they were they were there, everything was fine, and then suddenly everything wasn't fine, and it was really bad, and then they were dead. But I can see the social conundrum of, like, I can't admit to anybody that I was there. Because I was there doing things that, at, you know, in 1962, 63, wouldn't have been accepted. And maybe now they're not even around anymore to come forward i i don't know i know we have agreed to never victim shame but can we point out the fact that gib just tried to run away naked after everyone started shitting themselves he did he was found the furthest away but maybe she died first she was smaller yeah i wouldn't want to be him or in that scenario so i can understand some panic yeah at what point he's like does he know what's going on right probably if he can't you can't breathe because then you're vomiting but you can't breathe because of the sulfur. oh god it's like i need to get out of here what's happening how awful Uh, you go from boner to dead in a matter of seconds and and let's just that at the beginning of this episode you said this is the way i would want to die that is not remotely okay how i want to die not the first part but i mean they literally have went down in history as two people fucking who died. So, like, I feel there's, like... There's been others. <laughs> there, there actually really have because I started to look it up and was like, okay, yeah, I, I, I can't go down this rabbit hole. There are a lot some that we could cover. heart attack while fucking would be fine. Yeah, yeah. Quick, yeah, easy. I'm, I'm sure that's that's probably going to be how a lot of us go out. That, that could be how I 
I have always told my husband that if that's how we go, I'm just telling his mother I found him in bed like that. Oh, dude, you have to tell, like... Can't tell the mom the truth. Maybe not, maybe not his mother. Not his mama. His mama cannot picture his last moments like that. But everyone else, I mean, I'll, I'll let him live out the glory. <laughs> yeah, because you know? I, I, I mean, if that's how I die, you have to tell my dad that's how I die. Oh, for sure, even yeah. If that's not how I die... Yeah. Like someone needs to tell him that's how I die. Right. No, I'm telling Jim. I'm if I, if, I, if I die doing yeah, if I die doing something stupid, like you need to tell Nancy, be like, just tell him you died fucked up. Yes, absolutely. Also, I'm gonna just go ahead and put that shit on my resume too. Like fucked a guy to death. You know, I mean, that's fair. <laughs> it's just how it's gotta go. So just be prepared for that. If I send you an updated C V <laughs> So yeah, so that's where this case ends. It's kind of crazy. And now I have a brain bath for you if you're ready. This one is really funny and it comes to us since it's an Australian case. I have to share a brain bath that was sent by our favorite Australian listener, Jason. And he sends, this is the title of it. This is from the Daily Mail in the UK. And the title is Sent, send for a, I can't even, send for a sexorcist. Texas landlady owns an ex-brothel that's haunted by horny ghosts. A Texas landlady claims that she, the, that claims that a property that she owns is unrentable because it's haunted by leering sex crazed ghosts. Linda Hill from Gainesville believes the shabby property known as Hill House Manor was a brothel during the 19th century. And that the spirits of, her words, not mine, spirits of hookers and johns past still occupy its walls. Hill was initially skeptical, but says that she changed her mind while in the shower one day when a male voice leered, looking good. I'm just glad that it said looking good and not like fat ass. I mean, there was some opportunity there and he gave a compliment. That seems kind of nice. Now, some squats. <laughs> right. You know, you could hear all kinds of stuff. She assumed that it was her husband until he walked into the bathroom moments later. And he said, who were you talking to? And, and she goes, I was like, oh my God, it really is haunted. It was that incident which made Hill believe accounts from previous tenants who claimed to have heard voices groan, oh baby. God, should I really groan it? I'm not, I can't, I can't do it. I, I'm not an actress. I won't, I won't look, I won't look at you. <laughs> I know where you're on camera. I can't do it. Anyway, the voices were groaning. Oh baby. Oh baby. Yeah. And yeah, I like that. Enterprising and enterprising. Yeah, it does say enterprising. See, I'm so thrown off by my ASMR there that I can't even talk. Enterprising Hill has now decorated the house with a creepy porcelain doll and it is is marketing it as a real life haunted house for visitors to pay and attend just in time for Halloween. In 2011, she published a book, Hill House Manor, the guest book, outlining the investigations and stories told by previous tenants. She first purchased the property and several other homes in Gainesville, Texas, um, in order to rent them out. She believes the home, built in the 1840s, is the site of the former brothel, and that is what has led to the randy nature of the ghost. The first reported haunting came, hauntings came after 10 tenants moved in and out of the property in less than two years. Since then, she has continued to document the stories about Hill House Manor, which were most, recent, most recently recorded in a 2020 book, Hill House Manor, 13 Ghost Stories. Separate from the whispers, an upstairs door will regularly open even after Hill has forcibly closed it shut. One such instance was even caught on camera. Hill also claims to have audio footage of a ghost getting getting jiggy, but has yet to share it. I kind of want to hear that. The only ghost thing that I ever want to hear, because you know I'm a chicken shit. There's also a 19-foot deep well under the living room, which has been dubbed by Hill as the murder room. Almost every psychic that walks in there sees a dead man laying on the floor, Hill said. Recent visitors have have said that the well was, oh, a spiritual portal, leading to increased hauntings in the room and the room adjacent to the well. I have heard about spiritual portals. That shit is scary. 
So there has been a plexiglass cube that has been built in the center of the living room, allowing visitors to look directly down the well. So you can go and visit the horny ghosts. There is a picture of the well, too. No, thanks. I don't want to look down that. That is creepy. And it is right in the middle of their living room also. Oh, and there's a doll. How many people died horribly at this brothel? You know, I bet I could do a whole podcast series on brothel murders, both women and men. I bet there's, I bet there's a lot. A place of lust, lust and joy, and and not murder. But I bet, I bet there was some murder for sure. Well, thanks a lot for hanging out with us today, guys. Jay, thank you for stepping in for Megan when she couldn't be here. And hopefully... It's a fill. It's my pleasure. I know. I know. It's actually a lot of high heel to fill. Have you seen her with her court robes in her five-inch heels? Yeah. She's unrecognizable because she can almost look me in the eye. (laughs) Right. Exactly. She, She commands authority when she steps into a room with those heels. That's for sure. You would trip into the room and break both your ankles. Yeah. That's that's for sure. So, all right. Well, thank you guys for listening. We hope that you keep it curious. Feel free to follow us on all the social media outlets and interact with us. We are on there. And if you feel so inclined and you want to binge uh, lots extra content from us, go to patreon.com slash crime curious or click the link that's in our show notes. And until next time, everyone. Oh my gosh, Jason, we forgot to shake the scrotum a listener actually wrote me and said you have been sucking at shaking the scrotum sack lately so it's out of my reach let me grab it you shake yours and i'll shake mine (laughs) i am dying okay i bet yours isn't this loud (laughs) surprisingly no God, it's just soft and fleshy. Oh, that doesn't make a sound. Right. (laughs) Oh, shit. Okay, so on on that note, everybody, bye-bye. Bye-bye.